Blog Talk Radio. From the far reaches of the known universe, we are proud to present Brother Harold Muhammad, soldier, scientist, scholar. Blog Talk Radio's finest, not so mad science, on Black Hole Radio. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to tonight's edition of Not So Mad Science here on the Black Hole Radio Network. Once again and as always, coming to you live from the city of Detroit, Motown. Just because Barry Gordy took Motown to L.A. does not mean Detroit has lost its soul. I'm your host, Brother Harold Muhammad. We are continuing our journey of discovery into what is the psychology of war. It is often said that he who controls your food, your education, and your work and thus dictate your actions, your thoughts, and your behavior. They own you. Thus, the war front of something that is called critical race theory comes into mind. Why is there so much confrontation and discussion on this concept of critical race theory? Is it a new front in the war for self-discovery or an old war front whitewashed with a new name to trick the ignorant? And we have not forgotten COVID. Yes, we have updates on that war front. And I bid you all welcome, good tidings and cheer as I greet you. Ramadan Mubarak for this 12th day of the holy month of Ramadan, the month in which the Holy Quran was revealed to Prophet Muhammad ibn Abdullah. May Allah's peace, blessings, and mercy forever be upon his worthy servant. So, Before we begin, I'm going to share a piece of music that best identifies what we need to keep on doing. D-Train. This is the
Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. This is Not So Mad Science with your host, Professor Harold Muhammad here on the Black Hole Radio Network. Again, this is a journey because it's not going to happen overnight. We must know and begin to look and understand that we are at war. So what is the psychology of this war? I'm going to draw on the wisdom of the most honorable Elijah Muhammad. The understanding and expressing of the teacher. From the honorable minister Louis Farrakhan, who is taught by the honorable Elijah Muhammad. I'm going to draw on the books of slavery by another name, by Douglas A. Blackman. I'm also going to reach into the books of Dianetics from L. Ron Hubbard. I'm going to reach into the informational banks of the Brookings Institute, an academic think tank, if you will that studies social interactions and things of this nature. I'm going to reach into the writings of various psychologists from around the world. Education Weekly to make tonight's program fulfill the vision of understanding the psychology of war. This war front will begin with the book, A Torchlight for America, by the Honorable Mr. Louis Farrakhan, where he says, the fundamental motivation in this society is greed and preying upon the weak of the country and the weak of the world versus sharing wealth in cooperation with the weak and the poor. Again, the war front we're looking at is critical race theory. Bear with me. Greed is defined as a selfish desire for possession and wealth beyond reason. When greed is exercised in society, it is reflected by division among the people. The whole society is molded after division and that old mindset of haves and have-nots, of the Lord and the servant, the slave master and the slave, and the male and female. These mindsets are reflected in the doctrines of white supremacy and black inferiority and are perpetuated by the root problems of greed and pervasive immorality. 
speaking on the period after slavery, slavery, one of our giants, Mr. W.E.B. Dubois, or Du Bois, he tried to warn the South to move away from greed as the foundation of the society's economy. In his book, The Souls of Black Folk, W.E.D. Du Bois wrote, and I quote, Atlanta must not lead the South to dream of material prosperity as the touchstone of all success. Already the fatal might of this idea is beginning to spread. For every social ill, the panacea of wealth has been urged. Wealth to overthrow the remains of slave feudalism. Wealth to raise the cracker. Wealth to employ the black serfs. And the prospect of wealth to keep them working. Wealth as the end and aim of politics and as the legal tender for law and order. And finally, instead of truth, beauty, and goodness, wealth as the ideal of public school. Again, this is the war front of critical race theory. Rather than dealing head-on with the root problems of greed, it appears that throwing money at problems is the thing that America has done most, and done most foolishly. There are many things money cannot solve. The response to the riots during the 60s in Los Angeles, Watts, and Detroit were to throw money at the problems. But this did not get to the root problem of continued injustice to black people. The same problems among urban black people persist today. In fact, the problems have worsened, and I will validate that as we go on with tonight's show. America also throws away the taxpayer's money by commissioning Valuable studies, yet the government never really uses the results for the purpose of doing good. Though many of these studies are unpopular, they provide solutions that America perhaps use to stop the ship of state from sinking. But this mindset of greed has permeated every aspect of society, blinding the rulership to the results of the studies that they themselves have commissioned. Greed was in the very genesis of this country. Greed was at the root of the founding of this country. Greed was at the root of slavery and it persists as a central problem to this date. Again, we're looking at critical race theory. The business community is so filled with greed 
that the bottom line means more to corporate America than the lives of the people and America's well-being as a nation. Now, both the business community and the nation are in trouble. And the business community is asking the taxpayers through the government to bail it out. Rather than accepting less profit, businesses close plants, export jobs overseas, and negotiate deals with the government that take America further into debt. The military budget is as great as during wartime, yet senators in states with strong weapons industries fight for military budget increases so that the contracts can remain in their states. In effect, in effect, they're saying, to hell with the country and its budget woes. Allah, God, has a way of showing his disapproval to those who are wise enough to read the signs. FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Act, has enacted, or rather I should say was enacted, to finance emergencies and recoveries from national disasters. Natural disasters are God's way of indicating his displeasure and are a sign of impending doom. FEMA doesn't have enough money to pay for the earthquakes that hit San Francisco during the World Series a few years ago. FEMA does not have enough money to pay for the aftermath of Hurricane Hugo, <coughs> excuse me, Cyclone Omar, Hurricane Katrina, the tornadoes that have torn up Tampa Bay, and the results left by Hurricane Andrew. All of these catastrophes increase the budget deficit. And more of these catastrophes are on the way to America with ever-increasing rapidity. Again, we're talking about critical race theory being a front in the war or the psychology of war. It was the Honorable Elijah Muhammad who said in his book, that masterful book, Message to the Black Man on page 41, he says, the acquiring of knowledge for our children and ourselves must not be limited to the three R's. At that time, they called it reading, writing, and arithmetic. It should instead include the history of the black nation and the knowledge of civilizations of man and the universe and all the sciences. It will make us a greater people of tomorrow. We must instill within our people the desire to learn and to use that learning for self. We must be obsessed with getting the type of education 
we may use toward the elevation and benefit of our people. When we have such people among us, we must make it possible for them to acquire this wealth, which will be beneficial and useful to us. One of the attributes of Allah, the all-wise God, who is the supreme being, is knowledge. Knowledge is the result of learning and is a force for energy that makes its bearer accomplish or overcome obstacles, barriers, and resistance. In fact, God means possessor of power and force. The education my people need is that knowledge, the attribute of God, which creates power to accomplish and make progress in the good things or the righteous things. We have tried other means and ways, and we have failed. Today, as he states on page 48 of Message to the Black Man, with all our white civilized schooling, we have not been taught of our own. Again, we're talking critical race theory. They will never teach us of our own. We're going to come back to this. You have to ask yourself, so since we can authenticate and verify that they will not teach us of our own, what is the issue with this thing called critical race theory as a front in the war? First, let's take a look at these words and define them for what they are. Critical, by definition, means expressing or involving an analysis of the merits and faults of a work of literature, music, art, or something in the sciences. It requires a critical analysis. Race, by definition, when used in the context of sociology, one's race is their ethnic background. Black, white. Now, I don't use that term African-American because it's a misnomer. It doesn't really mean anything. It's not factual. But we are definitely a black man and black woman. And here is my perennial sticking point with this terminology for critical race theory. A theory is a supposition or a system of ideas intended to explain something 
especially one based on general principles independent of the thing being explained. A supposition of ideas, a system of ideas intended to explain something. So what is the analysis of my racial heritage that has to be theoretical, something that is supposed but is not factual? A theory is not a fact. Therefore, critical race theory means nothing. It is nothing. But there's a whole lot of hubbub to do about this thing called critical race theory. So let's look at it a little bit. Is critical race theory a way of understanding how American racism has shaped public policy? Or is it a divisive discourse that pits people of color against white people? Liberals and conservatives are in sharp disagreement. The topic has exploded in the public arena this spring, especially in schools for K through 12, where numerous state legislatures are debating bills seeking to ban its use in the classroom. Now, if in fact critical race theory is truly a delve into the history of American racism or the history of black America once coming to the Americas, now why should there be an issue in the study of black history in America? In truth, the divides are not nearly as neat as they appear to be. The events of the last decade have increased public awareness about things like housing, the impacts of criminal justice in society and criminal justice policy in the 1990s, the legacy of enslavement on black America, but there is much less consensus on what the government's role should be in righting these past wrongs. You add children and schooling into the mix and the debate of black history becomes especially volatile. School boards, superintendents of schools, school principals and teachers are already facing questions about critical race theory. Why is it so difficult to answer to the problem? And there are significant disagreements even among these so-called experts about its precise definition as well as how its tenets should inform K through 12 policy and practices. So what I'm touching on right now is just a starting point for my own view 
to help you educators grasp the idea and concept and aspects of this debate, which is not race theory, because the fact is black history is American history, because America is not until the black man and woman were brought here. We are part and parcel of the history of America. So just what is the idea of critical race theory outside of the definition of its individual words collectively put together? Hopefully I'm hoping that they intended to mean something more than the sum total of its parts. Critical race theory is supposed to be an academic concept that is more than 40 years old. The core idea is that race is a social construct. No, I disagree. And that racism is not merely the product of individual bias or prejudice, but something embedded in the legal system and policies. That is true. Racial prejudice and bigotry is a, a part of the social fabric and legal and economic systems of America. There's no way to avoid that fact. The basic tenets of critical race theory emerged out of a framework for legal analysis in the late 1970s and early 1980s created by legal scholars Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, and Richard Delgado, and some others. A good example is when, in the 1930s, government officials literally drew lines around areas deemed poor financial risk, often explicitly due to the racial composition of the inhabitants of that area. Banks subsequently refused to offer mortgages to black people in those areas. Excuse me. Today, those same patterns of discrimination known as redlining live on through spatially race-blind policies like single-family zoning that presents the building of affordable housing in advantaged or majority white neighborhoods and thus stifles and stymies the racial desegregation effort. Critical race theory is supposed to also has ties to other intellectual currents, including the work of sociologists and literary theorists who studied links between political power, social organization, and language. And its ideas have since informed other fields like the humanities, the social sciences, and teacher education. <clears throat> Academic understanding of critical race theories differs from representations in recent popular books, and especially from its portrayal by critics. Often, though not exclusively conservative Republicans. 
critics charge that the theory leads to negative dynamics, such as they focus on group identity or universal, over-universal, shared traits, divides people into the oppressed and oppressive groups, and urges intolerances. Thus, there's a good deal of confusion over what critical race theory means, as well as its relationship to other terms like anti-racism and social injustice, which which it is most often conflated. To an extent, the term critical race theory is now cited as the basis of all diversity and inclusion efforts, regardless of how much it actually informed those programs. One conservative organization, the Heritage Foundation, recently attributed a whole host of issues to critical race theory, including the 2020 Black Lives Matter protest and the LGBTQ clubs in schools. First of all, you can potentially make a connection between the Black Lives Matters movement and critical race theory because the Black Lives Matters movement grew out of the social unrest of the killing of young black men and women throughout this country. But you cannot make a connection between critical race theory and the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, and whatever else it means movement, there's no connection there. Sexual deviancy has nothing to do with it. (laughs) Diversity training in federal agencies and organizations, California's recent ethnic studies model curriculum, the free speech debate on college campuses and alternatives to exclusionary discipline, such as the Promise Program in Broward County, Florida, that some parents blame for the Parkland school shootings. Where is the relationship with black history? (laughs) When followed to its logical conclusions, Critical race theory is destructive and rejects the fundamental ideas on which our constitutional republic is based, this organization claims, according to the Heritage Foundation. Critical race theory is at fault for the Black Lives Matter movement. Critical race theory is at fault for the lesbian, gay, bisexual community. Critical race theory is at fault for the debates on college campuses, for the exclusionary disciplines. It is at fault for the Parkland school shootings. It is at fault for an educational program in Broward County, Florida. It's black people's fault. The theory says that racism is a part of everyday life. 
So people, white or non-white, who don't intend to be racist, can nevertheless make choices that fuel racism. I'm going to say that again. The theory says that racism is part of everyday life. So people, white or non-white, who don't intend to be racist can nevertheless make choices that fuel racism. Some critics claim that the theory advocates discriminating against white people in order to achieve equity. They mainly aim those accusations at theorists who advocate for policies that explicitly take race into account. The writer Ibram X. Kendi, whose recent popular book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, suggests that discriminations that creates equity can be considered anti-racist if often cited in this context. Fundamentally, though, the disagreement springs from different conceptions of racism. Critical race theory puts an emphasis on outcomes, not merely on individuals' own beliefs, and it calls on these outcomes to be examined and rectified. <clears throat> Among lawyers, teachers, policymakers, and the general public, there are many disagreements about how precisely to do these things and to what extent race should be explicitly appealed to or referred to in the process. I want to remind everyone that this is not so mad science with your host, Brother Harold Muhammad here on the Black Hole Radio Network. All these different ideas grow out of long-standing, tenuous intellectual debate. And therein lies essentially part of the problem with using the term critical race theory. We're not a theory. Our problems are not theoretical. They're actual. They're factual. They're painful. Critical race theory emerged out of the postmodernist thought, which tends to be skeptical of the idea of universal values, objective knowledge, individual merit, enlightenment, rationalism, and liberalism, tenets that conservatives tend to hold dear. Scholars who study critical race theory, and let's just be real about it, scholars who study black history, In education, look at how policies and practices in K-12 education contribute to persistent racial inequities in education and advocate for ways to change them. Let's call it what it is. Among the topics they've studied, racially segregated schools 
and underfunding of majority black and Latino school districts, disproportionate disciplining of black students, barriers to gifted programs and selective admission high schools and curricula that reinforce racist ideas. Critical race theory is not a synonym for culturally relevant teaching, which emerged in the 1990s. This teaching approach seeks to affirm students' ethnic and racial backgrounds and is intellectually rigorous. But it's related in that one of its aims is to help students identify and critique the causes of social inequality in their own lives. Well, we know the cause of the social inequality in our own lives. And I'm going to give that answer a little bit later. Many educators support, to one degree or another, culturally relevant teaching and other strategies to make schools feel safe and supportive for black students and underdeserved population. Students of color make up the majority of school-aged children but they don't necessarily identify these activities as critical race theory related. As one educator put it, quote, the way we usually see any of this in a classroom is, quote, have I thought about how black kids feel and made a space for them so that they can be successful? That is the level I think it stays at for most teachers. Like others interviewed for this particular piece, the teacher educator did not want to be named out of fear of online harassment. <clears throat> An emerging subtext among some critics is that curricular excellence can't coexist alongside culturally responsive teaching or anti-racist work. Their argument goes that efforts to change grading practices or make the curriculum less Eurocentric will ultimately harm black students or hold them to a less high standard. Really? When the truth is shared about the source of mathematics, the source of the science, the sources of literature. It started with them, transitioned through, and circled back around to them. But you have to teach it so that they recognize themselves in what's there. The mathematics of algebra, black man, algebra. The science of medicine, imhotep, a black man. The source of the Hippocratic Oaks. <laughs> 
black history is laden, and I'll say it again, laden with an identifier and an identity that can be shared with black students that give them a sense of self-worth and personal pride if you'll teach it to them properly. There's no low standard in this. As with CRT or critical race theory in general, its popular representation in schools has been far less nuanced. A recent poll by the advocacy group Parents Defending Education claim some schools are teaching that white people are inherently privileged while black and other people of color are inherently oppressed and victimized. That that achieving racial justice and equality between racial groups requires discriminating against people based on their whiteness and that the United States was founded on racism. Well, that's true. That is true. It is fundamentally factual based on the social construct of the society here in America. Teaching that doesn't defame or disenfranchise white America, but it does allow those students who learn that to know what they're working against, who they're working with. It levels the playing field. As they say in medicine, knowing what the problem is, is 90% of the battle to curing the problem. Hiding it and whitewashing it does not cure and eliminate the problem. Put band-aids on a gunshot wound. Much of the current debate appears to spring not from academic text, but from fear among critics that students, especially white students, will be exposed to supposedly damaging or self-demoralizing ideas. Again, that's not true. Because just as black students need to know the truth of the hill that they have to climb, white students need to know on the foundation on which they stand. White privilege is real. The money, the monies that undergird and provide foundations for white privilege is real. How that money was made is very real. For one thing, scholars say much scholarship on CRT or critical race theory is written in academic language or published in journals not easily accessible to K through 12 teachers. Oh, stop it. That's making an excuse. You're telling people not to read. The bills are so vaguely written that it's unclear what they will affirmatively cover. That's a way of trying to 
find a way to wipe out the affirmative action policies over the last 30, 40 years. Could a teacher who wants to talk about a factual instance of state-sponsored racism, like the establishment of Jim Crow, a series of laws that prevented black Americans from voting or holding office and separated them from white people in public spaces be considered in violation of these laws for not teaching critical race theory? There are teachers who have lost their jobs already for doing so. It is also unclear whether these new bills are constitutional or whether they impermissibly restrict free speech. Of course it does. It would be extremely difficult in any case to police what goes on inside hundreds and thousands of classrooms. But social studies educators fear that such laws could have a chilling effect on teachers who might self-censor their own lessons out of concern for parents or administrator complaint. <laughs> Mike Stein, who is an English teacher, told Chalkbeat, Tennessee, about the new law. And he said, I quote, History teachers cannot adequately, adequately teach about the trail of tears, the Civil War, or the Civil Rights Movement. English teachers will have to avoid teaching almost any text by a black black American author because many of them mention racism to various extents. The laws also become a tool to attack other pieces of curriculum, including ethnic studies and action civics. An approach to civics education that asks students to research local civic problems and propose solutions. Charge that schools are indoctrinating students in a harmful theory or political mindset is a long-standing one. Critical race theory appears to be the latest salvo in this ongoing debate to censor truthful education. In the early and mid 20th century, the concern about socialism or Marxism, the conservative American Legion, beginning in the 1930s, sought to rid schools of progressive-minded textbooks that encouraged to consider economic inequality. Two decades later, the John Birch Society raised similar criticism about school materials, as with the critical race theory criticism. The fear was that students would be somehow harmed by exposure to the truth. As the school-age population became more diverse, these debates have been inflected through the lens of race 
and ethnic representation, including disagreements over multiculturalism and ethnic studies, the ongoing canon wars to make up the English curriculum, and the so-called Ebonics debate over the status of black vernacular English in schools. In history, the debates have focused on the balance among patriotism and American exceptionalism. On one hand, and the country's history, validated history, confirmed history of exclusion and violence toward indigenous people and the enslavement of black Africa. And on the other hand, between its ideals and its practices, those tensions led to the implosion of a 1994 attempt to set national history standards. A current example that has fueled much of the recent round of critical race theory criticism is the New York Times 1619 project. Well, first of all, the issue with the 1619 project is that slavery did not begin in 1619. It began 64 years earlier in 1555 when the first slave brought, brought here from the western coast of Africa were deposited in the Caribbean islands and broken for three generations over that 64-year period and then brought to the eastern shore, the Virginias, the Carolinas, Texas, Louisiana, and Florida, the eastern seaboard of the United States. However, criticism of the 1619 Project which sought to put the history and effects of enslavement as well as black Americans' contribution to the democratic reforms at the center of American history. Again, American history is black history. And if you're going to teach American history, you must teach it from its root, black history. from the doors and shores of pain to the middle passage where millions upon millions drowned and were eaten by sharks to the Caribbean islands to the eastern shore of the United States. The cultural wars are always at some level battled out within schools, according to historians. It is because they're nervous about the broad social things, but they're talking in the language of schools and school curriculum, according to one historian of education. Vocabulary, but the actual grammar is anxiety about shifting social power relations. This is Not So Mad Science, and I'm your host, Brother Harold Muhammad, here on the Black Hole Radio Network. 
We're going to take a brief, brief six-minute break so that I can drink a little water or something to clear my throat and gargle it, or I should say, spit it out because we are in the month of Ramadan. And we'll be right back. Here's the Ivy Brothers with a little bit of summer breeze.
Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. This is Not So Mad Science with your host, Brother Harold Muhammad, here on the Black Hole Radio Network. In the book titled Slavery by Another Name by Douglas A. Blackman, he writes on page 104, whites had chased at the notion of black education as long as Africans had been imported to the United States. Instruction of slaves was illegal in the antebellum South. After emancipation, government collected property taxes were used to open new schools for all white children. (laughs) Whites gawked at the schools open for blacks during Reconstruction. Even the crude one-teacher variation that predominated in the region. Pro-pupil spending on education for black children and white children was essentially identical, leading to wide resentment among whites, especially in the cotton plantation regions where whites own the vast majority of land and paid nearly all the taxes, but were enormously outnumbered by Africans or black Americans in population. The white taxes were spent for the education of black children rather than solely their own was infuriating. White leaders began to openly espouse that schools for blacks were bad for their emerging economic order. Here's where the greed is. Education would spoil a good plow hand, opined a state legislator, J.L.M. Curry, in a speech to the Alabama General Assembly. Most worrisome to leading whites was that schooling illiterate blacks would encourage the upper branches of Negro society, the educated, the man who, after ascertaining his political rights, forced the way to exert them. 1880s, the Alabama legislator attempted to enact laws specifying that schools funded, or rather schools funds, will be apportioned on the basis of which taxpayers contributed them. Whites would fund white schools. Blacks would fund black schools. Federal courts quickly declared that openly discriminatory scheme in violation of the 14th Amendment. Now, I'm going to swing around to the Constitution in a moment. At the popularity of state-funded free public education surge, friction caused by black education grew. The numbers of white children attending public schools in Alabama raced from 91,000 to 159,000 between the 1870s and late 1880s. At the same time, the number of black pupils increased 
from 55,000 to 99,000. But the amount of funding spent for every student was declining. And the attempt to raise taxes were doomed. White saw the money spent in black schools as the only viable source of additional funds for their own children. In the legislative session of 1892, white leaders simply changed the law so that school taxes were no longer distributed among all schools in equal per-pupil allotments. Instead, the total number of students, white and black, would determine how much funding a county or town received from the state but it would be up to the local officials to divide the money among the schools as they may deem just and equitable. The offer of the bill was hailed by another elected elected official who said, and I quote, deserved a vote of thanks from the white people of the state. The effects on blacks was catastrophic overnight. White schools came to receive the vast majority of all funds for education in one predominantly black county. The total budget for black teacher salaries in 1891 for the entire state was $6,545. An approximate parity with what was being spent per student at white schools in the same county. After turning over control of funding to local officials, black teacher salaries were slashed. Later, the length of the black school year was cut to just six months, which reduced the cost and eliminating schools as an excuse for black children not to work in the fields during the planting and harvest seasons for crops. Forty years later, total salaries for teachers instructing the 8,483 black children in the county had risen negligibly to just over $8,000. The budget for white teachers with fewer than 2,000 students, had climbed by a factor of 30 to nearly $60,000. If any doubt remains about the intention of Southern whites in 1892, vigilantly and mob violence soon dissolved it. More lynchings of blacks occurred in the United States in 1892 than in any other year, in excess of 250. Executions peaked in Alabama the following year with the deaths deaths of 27 men. At the same time, the region's biggest industrial concern continued to expand. In December 1892, Tennessee Coal, Iron, and Railroad bought outright the Cahaba Coal Mining Company, 
and its 44,000 acres of coal-rich property, some of it extending to within a few miles of the old Cottingham Plantation in Bibb County, in addition to the coal fields. The company acquired a 15-mile railroad, nearly 500 coke ovens, much of the town of Blockton, and seven mines producing up to 3,000 tons of coal a day. The number of men forced into Alabama slave mines surged with the growth, swelling by half to 1,200 in 1892 from 845 men kept in slavery just three years earlier. <laughs> As labor strife surged in the early 1890s, company officials privately worked on plans to shift more of the company's operations to captive forced labor. One Tennessee Coal and Iron Railroad official visiting Montgomery wrote to the superintendent of the Pratt Mines, quote, probability is we will have to arrange to take care of a great many more convicts. Now, here's where we jump into the Constitution. In the U.S. Constitution, we see in part of the Voting Rights Act. Now, we're talking about critical race theory and this being a front in the war. And this war we're looking at is the psychology of war and how it is used to rupture the social fabric of the emotional mind, the intellectual mind, the critical mind of the black man and woman in this country. Part of the, and I believe it's the 14th Amendment, I'm just going to make sure here. I'm going to read it. As initially ratified, the United States Constitution granted each state complete discretion to determine voter qualifications for its residents. After the Civil War, the three Reconstruction Amendments were ratified and limited this discretion. The 13th Amendment, here it is now, the 13th Amendment of 1865 prohibits slavery except as a punishment for crime. I'm going to say that again. The 13th Amendment, 1865, prohibits slavery except as a punishment for crime. So if you were sent to jail, for which many black men and women were forced into jail for fictitious crimes, they were forced into state-sponsored, state-sponsored, federally approved slavery. We're talking critical race theory. 
from the Brookings Institute, in their studies, they say that Fox News had mentioned critical race theories 13,000 times in less than four months. Why? Because critical race theory had become a new boogeyman for white people unwilling to acknowledge the country's racist history and how its impact bleeds into the present. To understand why the study of black history, critical race theory, had become such a flashpoint in the culture, it is important to understand what it is and what it's not. Opponents fear that critical race theory admonishes all white people for being oppressors while classifying all black people as hopelessly oppressed victims. Back to the U.S. Constitution. Southern states generally sought to disenfranchise racial minorities during and after Reconstruction. 1868 to 1888, electoral fraud fraud and violence throughout the South suppressed the black American vote. Let's scurry up to the present time. On May 6th of last year, Senate bill, the Senate passed the bill for the reaffirmation of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 by a vote of 77 to 19. 47 Democrats and 16 Republicans. Excuse me. 47 Democrats Democrats voted for passing the bill. 16 Democrats voted against not passing it. 30 Republicans voted to pass it. Two Republicans voted not to pass it. The only senators who voted against the Voting Rights Act being reaffirmed are all from the same states, the southern states, that want to say that critical race theory, rather black history, is at fault. Those states being Montana, South Dakota. Georgia, Utah, Alabama, North Carolina, Kentucky, Virginia, oddly enough, New Hampshire, the odd eastern state out of it, northern state. What is that issue here? We can no longer leave the education of our children up to those who do not have our best interests at heart. Critical race theory is just a whitewashed name for black history. 
We cannot allow them to dictate our food. Food is not necessarily just what you take into your mouth or what is taken into your mind. So I can dictate what you eat and what you learn. I own you. For it can be truly said, God did not make niggas and Negroes, but the slave master did. So if a white man says to you, what's up, my nigga, and you respond back in the affirmative, then you truly are his nigga because he made you what you are. This is Not So Mad Science with your host, Brother Harold Muhammad, here on the Black Hole Radio Network. We are running out of time. So we're going to come back and finish up next week by Allah's grace and permission. So, I'm going to leave you as I came before you today with the expression of peace and paradise. Allah's and Ramadan Mubarak. And be the will of Allah. I'll be here with you next week to finish up where we left off. I never got to the COVID updates. There's so much, so much, so much. We have to do better. We have to do better. With that said, as I close in the immortal words of that great black Baptist preacher from the Abyssinian Baptist Church in the city of New York, the greatest black politician to ever grace these halls of so-called justice, the late Reverend Dr. Adam Clayton Powell, Jr. Keep the faith, baby. There's a God on scene today, and he's coming to redeem his own. Assalamualaikum. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.